0: One of the interesting things I find that so-called allies, that when they think they're being empowering, but in reality they're not, is that wonderful phrase a lot of BIPOC people do not like, I don't see color. You know, you think that's a good thing, but it's actually not because our color is a characteristic of who we are, where we come from, our place in society, how we're viewed by society. And if you don't see it, that's a comment on you because we see it in so many different ways.
1: Good day and welcome to the Leading with Nice Interview Series podcast. My name is Matthew Ewell and we want to help you inspire others, build loyalty and get results. Now today, as always, because I only do things I think is awesome, I'm really excited about today's guest. Drew Hayden Taylor is his name. The reason why I invited him on today was I was uh, reading the Globe and Mail uh, newspaper in Canada for those of you listening abroad. And there is a great article and the headline was seven things you should never say to an indigenous person. And I'm personally very interested in learning more about my interaction personally with uh, my friends who are indigenous and learning more about some of their perspectives and whatnot. And so I was very interested, interested to read the article. And then about halfway through, I was like, the dry wit in it was outstanding. And I love, if you're familiar with uh, me or this podcast, you know, I really enjoy that uh, like a dry piece of humor. And Drew's writing was just exemplary. And then when I learned about him, I was not surprised. So here's a bit of his bio. He's an award-winning playwright, novelist, filmmaker, and journalist. He was born and still lives on the Curve Lake First Nation, which is just uh, a bit outside of Peterborough. He's done everything from performing stand-up comedy at the Kennedy Center in Washington, D.C., to serving as the Artistic Director of Canada's premier Indigenous theatre company, Native Earth Performing Arts. The author of, get this, 33 books, his next big project includes Season 2 of the APTN documentary series, Going Native, a series he co-produced, co-wrote, and hosts as well as the release of Me Tomorrow, the fourth in a series of nonfiction books exploring unexpected aspects of Indigenous culture. Uh, Drew, then, thanks. I, I really am honored. Thank you so much for making time for this today.
0: Oh, well, you say that to all your guests.
1: Well, I do, I but I am honored. Like, you could be doing a lot of things right now, but, you know, here you are. So I, I do super appreciate that. And also, I'm really excited to, you know, uh, people who listen to this podcast regularly know that we share questions in advance. So, we can both be prepared and I'm just really excited to hear y- your perspective and your thoughts and answers. And one of the things actually that just stood out from your article was one of the points you made is like, I, I'm gonna paraphrase, it was like, don't ask me if I know Sharon who's indigenous, right? It'd be like asking like, you know, we all hit it as Canadians when we travel abroad and like, oh, do you know Jim? He lives across the country. But also there's another one where like somebody asked, well, what do you, like the, the royal you think of this? And you're like, uh, there's like uh, 60 different languages and tribes or more than that. They all have different motivations and needs and wants. So clearly today when we have this conversation, I had I that in mind. Like I'm talking to you about you and your point of views, but still it's uh, so valuable. So very sad news came to the surface just before this podcast last week here in Toronto. So I'm dating this a bit We're we're recording in early June, 2021, and that was a discovery of the remains of 215 children at the site of a former residential school in Kamloops. And um, there is a time this may not have even been news in Canada, but today it has, which is a positive sign that people care about it. So I think the question a lot of people have, I have, from where you sit, what can Canadians do to be better allies and stay motivated to make canada a better place for indigenous populations
0: well that's a tough question i mean i don't there are entire libraries written on this and everybody it's like a rorschach test everybody has their own interpretation of what that journey is i can't give you an answer for that for me uh, i think a lot of it has to do with education having to understand in reality there are more similarities between our cultures than differences, and that's always important to keep. And it's those differences that I think makes us all unique and special and interesting. I cannot think of a more boring society than all one culture or one, one people, whatever. Um, you know, and I, I grew up on a reserve, but as I was just telling you earlier, I love um, going out and getting Korean or Thai food. I mean, that has become so much a part of my life, and I shudder at the thought of the world without such unique and interesting. Interesting uh, cuisine. So, how to make it, be a better ally, how to better understand is just to keep your, your ears open, your mouth shut to watch, to learn, to understand. If we are as a nation, as an indigenous people, complaining about something, there's usually a good reason we're not doing it just because we're bored mm. and it's a it's the afternoon on a on a Tuesday. There's a very, very specific reason why. We have issues with various aspects of Canadian culture and I think one of the best way to help is to understand that not to dismiss it not to argue against it but to take a, an objective look and because chances are I would say 99 times out of a hundred people listen and do that they will come
1: away going you know I would probably feel the same way in the same situation yeah no 100 percent okay so that I- I want to take that uh, we just talked about and really hone in on something specific then. So oftentimes what happens with this podcast is there'll be somebody in a leadership position that will hear an idea or hear like an actionable item. And I get an email back a few weeks or a few months later saying, oh, I tried that thing and I did it. So right now I know because it's it's happening with clients that I work with. There's a drive in organization saying, oh, we want to, you know, support, uh, indigenous people, we want to do some social action in our organization. And what I see happens in whether, you know, swap out whatever it is for whatever, you know, if it was the environment two years ago, the environment. And what happens is, is these companies like spring into action and they think they're doing good. Have you seen a good example of that in practice you could tell us about?
0: Not really. I mean, I know it exists. I don't, I don't scribble this stuff down. Uh, most people are more... Tend to remember the stuff that doesn't work, that the stuff that mm. does work. One of the interesting things I find that allies, so-called allies, that when they think they're being empowering, then but in reality they're not, is that wonderful phrase a lot of BIPOC people do not like. It's the phrase, I don't see color yes i understand where you're coming from where you're saying you know you think that's a good thing but it's actually not because our color is a a characteristic of who we are where we come from our our place in society how we're viewed by society and if you don't see it
1: that's a comment on you because we see it in so many different ways yeah i find that so tone deaf like um so i uh Uh, my good friend, Tristan, he was on a few, we had a a few episodes ago. He, I call him the not only non white guy in this place called Karen Park, Saskatchewan. It's a little tiny town. Used to be a former military base. And we were talking about this very topic, how people at uh, his town will say that to him. And he's like, well, you know, your neighbor, when I go into the grocery store and they just stare at me, they see color, right? Like, so they're being more honest about it than you are. And I was like, wow, that is such good perspective. Like, to to say like oh I don't see color and I'm helping you like no it's very tone I totally get it so you know one of the things too is that I'm always curious about and I forgive me if I've done this so because it's not my intention but like you're an artist right and you may have done this but you may not have so I don't want to come from a place of assumption like when you were growing up and you discovered that you had a talent and you found joy in this were you or were you not thinking like oh I I want to write about Canada's first nations or did this just happen organically? Was this something that kind of you were driven by or was it just a thing?
0: Well, I, when I wanted to, I discovered when I was young, I wanted to be a writer, but at that time, you know, as I always tell people I'm a thousand years old mm. uh, when I was growing up, we had two or three television stations. And I, I, I say this, and a lot of younger people don't understand me when I say that those stations were very snowy. Yes. And so I would read a lot. And the more I read, the more I realized I wanted to be a writer because I love the concept of writing. You know, you're creating a work of art out of a figment of your imagination. It is very cool, very wonderful. And it's what I want to do. And one of the great things about being a writer is the universe that you create, you have more control over that universe than you have of the universe you live in. Mm. And I kind of like that. However, in school, we never studied any Indigenous literature. There was no Indigenous right. literature that was in our school, that was in our library. So I wasn't sure Indigenous people wrote. And I remember asking some people, i asked my grade 11 English teacher if it was possible to make a living from creative writing. And without looking up from his desk, he said, no, not really. And my mother said uh, she didn't understand why I wanted to be a writer. It wouldn't get me anywhere. So I gave up wanting to be a writer. So I'd wanted to be a writer as a kid, but the older I got, it became apparent to me that there wasn't much point in being a writer. So I gave it up and I didn't re-embrace my art until I was at least in my mid-twenties. So, um, you know, it wasn't really a burning pain when I was young because it had been stamped out, but it's so much not a case of me finding my art. My art had to track me down, kick me in the ass and say you're a writer, snap out of it, now get writing. But I think that on the other hand, the good part of that is it gave me a chance to season, to age like a good wine, like a good cheese, because I really didn't have much to write about. I didn't know if I, I probably wasn't a good writer when I was young. I needed to get out, have my heart broken, see the world before I became a writer. And it all turned out, it all turned out for the best. What I'm really excited about, the way I describe myself, is i'm a contemporary storyteller hmm. it used to be you know storytelling was an oral job an, an oral way of, of of telling stories and then gradually as uh, civilizations grew and changed we, it went into um theater it went into print it went into television it went into radio went into movies and in today's day and age even video games now have intricate and deep narratives oh, yeah. within them. And I work in so many different fields. As I said, I'm a playwright. I'm a novelist, short story writer. I do nonfiction. I do documentaries, television. I consider myself a contemporary storyteller because there's so many different ways to tell stories in this day and age. And I'm still
1: I'm still exploring as many of them as I can. There's a great commercial. Uh, I've seen it. I think it plays in front of movies. or I forget where I've seen it. But... It's a Black actor who is saying, like, hey, gatekeepers, those who like write the plays, like in movies and television shows. My first five years of editions were all like drug dealer, gang member, et cetera, et cetera. So, like, when you were like coming up as a writer, were you finding, were people expecting a certain kind of content from you? Or was that because writing is sometimes um, anonymous from uh, from seeing somebody, at least, did you not find that? Well, I remember I wrote an episode of a show called um, Street Legal. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah. And
0: they cut, the, the, I, I actually saw notes from the story editor to the other writers, from the producer to the story editors on a native character I'd written saying, cut back on his lines and make him sound more Indian. Uh. And so he was walking around going, always oh, you ask questions, all this sort of weird stuff and annoyed the hell out of me. And I also worked on North of 60, which was an, a horrible experience where they basically just rewrote everything. So, um, you know, and, and the interesting is that today, I am know for obvious reasons, I'm known as the native writer. Um, uh, I get called in to work on native projects, which isn't a bad thing. I don't mind that it's the world I know. Um, but I frequently get asked, do I ever want to work on projects that have absolutely nothing to do with with the indigenous culture? Right? And I go, yeah, I would love to. Yeah, There's course. a wonderful writer down in the States named Rebecca Roanhorse, mm-hmm. who wrote a very uh, um, amazing award winning science fiction fantasy novel called um, Trail of Lightning. And it takes place on the Navajo reservation. And it's what would happen after uh, some apocalyptic environmental problem where the Navajo reservation builds a wall around itself to keep all the hungry white people out but because of this whatever happened all the Navajo gods and demons come back to life mm. so it's these people living regular everyday existence on a, on a reserve suddenly having to deal with these pesky gods and demons and it's it, it won all the major science fiction awards And it was so good that she was hired by Star Wars to write a Star Wars novel. Mm. And she did. And I mean, that's one of the kind of dreams I have, except I'm more of a Star Trek fan than a Star Wars fan. Um, But you know, that kind of thing I would love to do. I'm very happy writing, writing indigenous stories, Uh, you know, and what's really interesting about this time in history is the concept of genre writing. It used to be that in the indigenous community, indigenous writers, There are basically three themes that were coming out of the Indigenous community, both in terms of novels, plays, um, poetry, etc. There were either historical narratives, victim narratives, or stories exploring the concept of post-contact stress disorder. But in the last 10, 15 years, there's been this this explosion of genre fiction where Indigenous people are culturally appropriating all these different genres of fiction from the dominant culture and indigenizing them. So you have um, people writing, uh, Daniel Heath Justice wrote a trilogy that's basically his version of Lord of the Rings where there are dwarves and and elves and swords and magic. Um, Another friend of mine wrote a collection of Indigenous International Indigenous Erotica. Uh, Tom King, when he's not writing um, award-winning fiction, non-fiction, his hobby is writing murder mysteries, Hmm. right? And now there's this big explosion of Indigenous science fiction. Um, Wabagijic Rice wrote a book called Moon of the Crested Snow, which is more of an apocalyptic book. Sherry Demerlane wrote a book called The Marrow Thieves which was highly successful. I wrote a collection of indigenous science fiction short stories. My first novel was a native vampire novel. I'm just about to sell my new novel, which is an indigenous horror novel. Mm-hmm. So what's happening right now is really exciting is we're beginning to, to tell our stories, not
1: just in those original three themes, but the sky's the limit. Very cool. Yeah. You know, I think one of the things when I was uh, my like 20 or 21, I spent a couple of summers uh, just north of Perry Sound, and I met a guy that was a social worker. He was Indigenous, and he was a social worker, and we would meet, like, I had my days off. He just happened to be in the ca- hang out at the cafe, and he would tell me stories, and what I, and, like, you know, he's a great storyteller, about his work. Right. But, like, what, what I found awesome about it was, like, he wasn't telling me Indigenous stories. He was telling me stories but were flavored by his experiences. Yeah. And it really grew me to appreciate like that thing. I don't know, have a word for it. It's like, and I love that you say like, of course, I'll take other work. I'm a writer. That's what I want to do. I mean, stupid to turn down. Well, it. I mean, I mean, the
0: interesting thing about this whole thing is say at the end of the day, when I go home from wherever I happen to be. Yeah. 95% of the books I read, the television I watch are, are, are mainstream. Yeah. Um, uh, um, Stories like you know, I watch The Simpsons, Big Bang Theory, etc., and I enjoy them and I laugh. And 90% of the people who buy my novels and go see my plays, just because of the ratio of non native people to native people, 90% of the people who are familiar who read my work are actually non native. Yeah, so again, I keep going about there are more similarities than differences. That's amazing. People can enjoy the stuff I write because I enjoy the stuff other people write, other uh, um, non native writers
1: write. I'm gonna, it's behind a paywall, but it's worth this global mail subscription. I'm gonna put a link to the article I read of yours, uh, the seven things you, you should never say to an indigenous person. And that what reminded me to do that is uh you talk about some of your friends who have appropriated like that talk oh, exclusively in Simpsons quotes. Um, I thought that was I have those Simpsons and Star, Trek quotes. Star Trek quotes. I have those same friends. Um, you have this line in there. It's like, well, what what can we do? And you're like, Well, how about stop making our women disappear? Like so. What I'm curious about is, like, how do you take these subjects that are heavy, but you write it in a way that is so approachable? And it's because of humor. Is that just the way you were raised or is that something that you've you've crafted over the years?
0: Well, oftentimes humor is, is an, I'm going to say the word the indigenous way, but it's all cultures, that, you know, yeah. use humor to both comment on and reflect the harm of society. How I do this, how anybody does this, I don't know. There's no formula for it. I can't give you, I tell you how I do it. It's just, you know, experience. I mean, there's that, that famous Woody Allen, um, I think, quote, you know, tragedy plus time equals comedy. right. Right. You know, there's, there's so many different ways. I can't tell you how, how I do it. You know, there's some stuff where you go, no, I can't do that. It's either too soon or that is not funny. Like this, the whole thing about the two, two fifteen in cam loops. I can't, don't know how to make that funny unless you make a really ironic black reference to something using that term, but it's
1: like something I wouldn't want to try right now. Mm. Yeah. You know, I also find, uh, because I've been accused of being funny sometimes and I just find like I look at things and I see humor in a lot of it right away and that could be maybe that's a coping mechanism I don't know but Mm -hmm. um, yeah I feel the same way because people say how do you be so funny it's like I don't know man like it's just also I ingest a lot of humor right like I you know it's funny you know I I was thinking it's a two references to snowy channels in Street Legal, could you imagine, like, uh, if you wanted to binge watch Street Legal back in the day, you'd have to, like, commit four years and watch uh, every Thursday night or whatever it was. Yeah, yeah. Um, man, so three decades of writing. You've been celebrated, which I think is fair to say. You've been awarded. You've traveled the world. What uh, I mentioned a few things you're working on in your uh, introduction, but what do you have on the go right now? Because before we started recording, you mentioned a few things you were working on. You, you wrote like 400 plays or something during the pandemic as well. I wrote two plays during the
0: pandemic. We're going to be workshopping them hopefully August, September. Um, I have Meet Tomorrow coming out, I think in September, October. And hopefully my new novel, as I said, I'm waiting to find out. I have a meeting on Friday with a publisher about it. Um, I'm in pre-production to, uh, to start shooting um, season two of Going Native. I'm still writing articles for the, for the Globe. There are just so many things. I mean, my, my mind is constantly going, going. I adapted one of my plays into a
1: screenplay. Just a few things hanging around. You know, here's one reflection I want to just say very plainly for people that look like me and might sound like me. And this is my learning. You might be tempted when you meet somebody like Drew. Do you like, oh, indigenous? Oh, writer? Um, how can I, how can we work, get you to do indigenous writing things for us? And what I want to encourage you with, man, like uh, honestly, like I promised Drew like 20 to 30 minutes, but I could easily take him the whole afternoon just like shooting the poop. I needed some good laughter today. I've laughed. So my learning for you, if you look like me and sound like me is like uh, Drew's a dude who writes and it's not about not seeing color definitely be aware of it but it's not about like oh oh there's a person who's not white well let me let me make sure to make sure that that they get the front seat in every question i have about this that's not necessarily the right way uh let people be themselves read the globe read drew stuff read other uh, authors and write ingest other uh media so that's what i'd say but drew thank you so much for being here today it was a pleasure it was fun sir Before we go, I just wanna thank the people that put this together. Austin Pomeroy, man, he's the audio editor. He does a great job. Jeff Anhorn takes this video, makes it look great. Jamie Hunter is our content manager. If you saw this, you probably saw it online and he did all that work. Sam Forsen did all the graphic designs for the post, for the podcast logo. Uh, Cindy Craig does all the booking. Carrie Cotton is our account manager. And as I do this podcast, she keeps the company running. So I appreciate it. And Naomi Grossman helps with research and writing the questions. I just sit here and get to talk. It's amazing. I have the best job at all of this. So thank you everybody who helped put this together. And Drew, again, thank you. We will see you next time. Oh, before I go, where can people find out more about you? Where can they, where should they go? What's it, aside from Googling your name?
0: Uh, well, yeah, I'm all over the, I'm all over the net. You can go to my website,
1: DrewHaydenTaylor.com. Uh, that's a good beginning and i'm on twitter oh yeah oh my gosh dude there's one as i was getting ready okay i just have to i have to pull this up you had one today that made me howl uh oh yeah i i love this about uh so tweets read out loud by matthew yule drew hayden taylor i'm envisioning a musical called egerton ryerson sort of a cross between sweeney todd don't eat his indian tacos and fanto the opera where he'll be prowling the secret corridors of the university wondering what indigenous people are doing there i loved it that was so good man i loved it okay that is all check it out i'll touch you guys again bye-bye